killed him. I killed him for money and for a woman. I didn't get the money and I didn't get the woman. Pretty, isn't it? Hello and welcome to episode 102, mm. I think, of, goodness me, of Ribbon of Memes, a film podcast where we talk about masterpieces. I am the femme fatale of this podcast and I am joined as ever by Roger, the... Uh, Lazy salesman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we are back in film noir. You can't keep us away. Um, yeah, and th- this is definitely one one of the classics, but also not one of the ones that fits my general definition of the you know the Bogarty film noir, where generally you you've got the guy who is the good guy and comes through in spite of everything because he's the one good man. This is your along these mean streaks walks a man who is not himself mean, isn't it? We don't get that with Double Indemnity. Um, 1994, Billy Wilder, I'm almost certain if I uh, go off guard to call him Gene Wilder at some point. 44. What did I say? 94. <laughs> oh my god. I was concentrating so hard on getting Billy Wilder right and not calling him Gene Wilder that I forgot the year. It is, uh, sorry, let's try that again. 1944, Billy Wilder's, um, noiriest of film noirs. I've forgotten the name. <laughs> like, let me start that again. <laughs> 1944, um, and Billy Wilder's noiriest of film noirs, Double Indemnity. Yeah, and... It's not the most promising of titles, is it, named after an insurance clause? And it wasn't... As, as far as I can see, I, I did a bit, a bit of reading on this, because this isn't really a thing anymore. And I don't think it ever was particularly in the UK. The ba- basic idea is saying, you know, here is your life insurance or whatever, and if this particular unlikely thing happens, we will pay out double or triple or whatever. So it's like a little sweetener that the actuaries have worked out. You'll be fine. It's never gonna, uh, it's never gonna make you pay out too much, but it's a good way of selling this policy. If you are struck by a meteorite while riding a camel, we'll pay out double. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. And that, that will make your, Widow feels so much better. Oh, your, your widow seems to be arranging a meteor strike. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, for your birthday, she's arranged a camel experience. So this is a story by James M. Kane. It was serialised in '36. It was uh, published as, as a separate book in '43. So it's pr- pretty up to the minute. When, when it came out originally, the studios got quite interested. The magazine publication, and then our old friend Joseph Breen came along. Yes, we are back in the era of the motion picture code. I always want to call it the Hayes Code, much to your irritation, I'm afraid. But um, this, that, they basically said, no, this is this is not suitable. Oh, I've, I've got the quote here. The general okay, low tone and sordid flavour of this story makes it, in our judgment, thoroughly unacceptable for screen presentation before mixed audiences in the theatre. I'm sure you will agree that it is most important to avoid what the code calls the hardening of audiences, especially those who are young and impressionable, to the thought and fact of crime. God, they need to watch some 80s and 90s films, don't they? Yeah, and then <laughs> Their explode, legacy was yeah. assured. Oh, that's a, that's a wonderful quote. Uh, what, was, uh, what was the opening bit again? The sordid... Low tone and sordid flavour. Oh my god, that's a, pretty much a prerequisite for films nowadays. But this is, and I, I don't know whether this is because it is Kane rather than, you know, Dashiell Hammett, who very much was the, uh, the, the, the one good man. But yes. we've got Raymond Chandler, uh, working yes, on the adaptation. We have a, 
a team up of Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler working on the screenplay. Um, they did not get on at all, apparently. I've got to say, I think Chandler's doing a much better job here than he did on The Big Sleep, and possibly because the plot was already basically established. Um, and he, yes. he, you know, he, he's got his snappy dialogue, and that's great. Um, perhaps he was not so great at the plot that would give this dialogue something to hang on, but that's here. I think Billy Wilder, um, I, again, I, from what I gather, Billy Wilder, were, they were both sort of script directors. Billy Wilder, there was a whole section at the end of um, the film that is just cut, at the end of the book, that is just cut out of the film, which maybe we'll come to. But here, um, it's a much punchier... I, in fact, I read somewhere that Billy Wilder tried to use a lot of Kane's dialogue, um, some of which I think my opening quote about um, I killed him for... Uh, money and a woman i think that is in the book but he tried to use a lot of kane's dialogue and it just didn't work and much to his irritation Raylan, raymond chandler's dialogue worked much better uh, the one that hmm. feels very chandlery to me uh which again we'll come on to is the moment when um our insurance agent walter neff is talking to the the femme fatale um played by Barbara Stanwyck, and they're doing this kind of, um, what's the speed limit in these parts? 45 miles an hour? How fast do you think I was going? It's just full of uh, illusion. It's a bit on the nose, but it's just, it feels very much like Raymond Chandler kind of dialogue. Mm. Um, the thing that really struck me, possibly because I have seen both these actors before in other things, and I, I suspect it is probably lost on most modern audiences, is the, the t taking advantage of typecasting. As we talked about with uh, Nick Cage in Pig. Yes. Um, yeah, Fr Fred McMurray. He is, I mean, he, he's kind of, he's known as being a kind of Woodhouseian protagonist. You know, he's happy-go-lucky, he's good-hearted, he's lazy. Good things are going to happen to him, uh, yeah. but he's not going to go to any trouble. Uh and similarly, uh, Stanwyck is very much, she is the heroine. Always the heroine. Yes. And, and they were both very famous, very highly paid stars of the day as well at that mm -hmm. point. This didn't make them. They were all, uh, by all, I include Edward G. Robinson, um, they were all uh, well-established stars at the time. Well, Robinson was uh, a bit reluctant uh, in this because he'd been the big star pretty much up to mm -hmm. this point, and this, this would be uh, second or third billing. But then he, he was finally brought to admit, look, Edward, you're getting old. Yeah, it's, you're not going to carry on like that forever. Um, unlike nowadays, where action heroes go on into their 80s. The thing that particularly impressed me with Stanwyck, I mean, we should talk about the wig. Um, <laughs> yes. It, it has certainly been suggested that uh, the wig was deliberately chosen to make her look trashy rather than beautiful. I, I couldn't help feeling that if that if the film were being made these days, almost certainly she uh, that rat role would be cast for Margot Robbie or somebody like that, or um, yeah, the, whoever is yeah. the current go-to casting for it, this woman is so beautiful. beautiful that she can yeah. lead any man around by the nose or other parts. And I <laughs> yes, and I think that would be missing the point. And the the point of her here is that she is not the amazing you will lose everything over her any man would it's this man would because this man is himself a weak man yes i i completely agree it's not that she is an unattainable goddess in fact quite the opposite the point is she's amazing and glamorous and beautiful but crucially she's attainable and that's what that's really what triggers this and, whole and kind of trashy 
And kind of track, yeah. Um, I, I think Billy Wilder, I read a quote somewhere, which I'd like to think is true, that he um, he thought she looked great in the wig until the second month of filming, where he decided it made her look like George Washington. <laughs> which yeah. is, uh, it's a very um, curly blonde wig. Uh, she's a, a, a brunette, um, naturally. Um, so the brief summary of the plot um, is very noir plot, is that we have this double indemnity clause in an insurance. Um, well, that, that's not uh, even particularly key to it. No, that's true. Uh, we we have um, well, we have Walter Neff trying to sell insurance um, on it, do, doing his door to door beat. Um, he meets. Um, so he he's come along, be- and the, it shows something of the era that uh, he somebody has not re- renewed his insurance policy, and they get a salesman calling on him. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, but instead, he meets her wife, uh, his wife, um, the Barbara Stanwyck, and and just the opening scene um, where they meet is um, I, it has a quite classic noir opening as well. In well, I don't know if it's it's not really a modern noir opening, but it opens with a narration and a car crash and a wounded man. This is Walter Neff um, who goes into his insurance offices. Oh, he cracks open a lovely wax cylinder machine to record. Oh, good old classic dictaphone, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Um, and then we find out what happened. Uh, we have some lovely lines like, I never knew murder could smell like honeysuckle, <laughs> which I don't know, I played by Yeah, other maybe people. if you didn't constantly have a cigarette in your gob. <laughs> <laughs> they are like chimneys, this whole film, goodness me. Um, anyway, long story short, that she, it, it transpires that she wants to get rid of her husband and collect on the insurance money, and he is taken in by it. He's... Mm. He, I, I, I'm not sure. It, I think you may be oversimplifying. I mean, yeah. initially she's she's sort of implying that she could be available, and I, and uh, yeah, the guy the guy is a salesman. It's probably not the first time that something like that has happened. You certainly get the impression that he's not totally out of his depth with this. Uh, I mean, I don't think he realizes quite how out of his depth he is, but he feels like he's in control of the situation at first. Yeah, and there there are multiple things coming in here. I mean, she she is suggesting in a most crucially not not uh, admissible in court sort of way that my word <laughs> well, it, it it would be jolly nice if she had an insurance policy on her husband and and, and he didn't know about it yeah she dances around are there it. any implications to that oh i'm sure there aren't any implications to that in fact she does a great job of making him think that he's come up with the idea which is a classic sort of yeah and he's primed for that because as as we see later yeah he he has spent although he is primarily a salesman he also has has a hand in the fraud investigation side of things i don't know how realistic that yes. is but yeah you know, shrug um and he has seen a lot of failed frauds yes and he has got to thinking, well, you know, they, they all make these mistakes. Well, I can, I can avoid making those mistakes because I know about them. It's the to catch a thief kind of thing is the best person would be another thief. Um, and here yeah, the best person to get away with murder on insurance form is someone who has seen all the mistakes before. Yeah. This was apparently, um, uh, in, inspired by, um, I think, think it was, you know, Kane talking with someone who just, well, yeah, yeah, I've got these ideas. I'm just never going to do it. Um, I, I, there was a, I think I read a lovely story somewhere of a, a typesetter. Mm, um, yeah, that was it. And he has his whole, um, his whole career. He spent making sure mistakes don't creep into the typeset. But one time, 
it says uh, one time he t- uh, he was given the typeset of something like uh, it's something like trucker's oh, shoes it. for guys it, who love to truck. Uh, if these sizes are too big, take a tuck in them. Oh, that's right. Yes, yeah, that's right. Um, and he said it, it basically it was too much to resist not to do it. So having spent his whole career of stopping these mistakes happening, he actually then turns into the person who made the mistakes happen. So he uh, he switched the T for an F in that mm. particular <laughs> typeset. Um, and that gave him the idea that what if this guy who spent his whole career stopping insurance fraud um, decides to do it himself? Yeah. So he he is... We, we've talked before about the the sense of a, a good effective tragedy being one where you think this could so easily go a different way but it's not going yes. to and yeah he he is primed for that he he's got his brilliant scheme for for how you murder somebody and claim on the insurance she she's got her yeah it would be quite nice if this guy got murdered Oh, it turned round. Um, supposing, I uh, supposing you wanted him to disappear. Oh, supposing I did. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's very nicely done. Yeah, it, it it feels in a way like the inverse of Casablanca or the, or the Thin Man films, because we've got the banter, but it's all corrupt and rotten banter rather than these are our heroes. And while Walter, yeah, I mean, these are genuine anti. There is not, um, there's not much nice about them, particularly. Um, in either case, they're just greedy and lustful. And even like the opening scene where, you know, they're falling in, uh, falling into each other's orbit, it might be the best way of putting it, is that they're not driven by love or respect. They're driven by like lust and mm-hmm. greed. Um, and it's so obvious. Um, and even Walter Neff kind of understands that and realizes this is probably a bad idea, but he just, as you say, he is ultimately, uh, a weak man and can't resist it. Yeah. I mean, all right, we, we, we have took, this entire film is Roger's murder corner, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, uh, how to do a murderer and, uh, and not get away with it. It's, it's like, um, it's sort of like the opposite of a whodunit, really, because our sleuth character, the Edward G. Robbins character, who's the, um, the insurance investigator, who's basically a kind of Sherlock Holmesian level, um, solver of such things though i do like the way he uses all his facts there's a wonderful scene where he's talking we've skipped ahead of it um mm. but there's a wonderful scene where he's talking about suicide statistics he just delivers perfectly to the head of the company and it's really nicely done i, I don't know how the film does it quite but you're kind of you don't it's hard to like walter neff it's hard to like um uh, what's barbara stanwick's character called i can think of her as barbara stanwick yeah she, um, she, it, it is a bit um oh uh, uh phyllis she Phil, doesn't phyllis really get talked mrs dietrich said because she's mainly called um sort of kind of patronizingly or um possessively uh baby by um walter neff um so um, you, you're not really, you're not really rooting for them. But equally, when we had uncut gems, we had a deeply unpleasant character that neither of us liked, and we didn't want to. He, uh, you don't like the characters, but you don't even admire them. But you, you well, kind they, of they both them. have their moments of realizing, at least in principle, that there is a right thing that they could be doing. <laughs> yes, they're not going to do it. Um, but which, still, which, which I don't feel uh, Uncut Gems ever really quite did. I mean, he he hasn't he has no self awareness. He's he's just who he is. He's happy being who he is. Yeah, um, and wh- he's, he's... whereas here they are. I mean, 
to some extent this may, may be the effect of the production code, but they are, they are aware that there is a morality, that it's just they're not sticking to it. And it, and it is, it is one of the stressors on them that they're yes. aware of that. So, well, that, there's anyway. a nice moment. Uh, yeah. Sorry, yes. Yeah, so we we have this um, this murder perfectly, apparently planned by. So uh, Walter takes care of all the details, and he does think it through a lot because he's seen all the mistakes other people have made. Um, so he makes sure he has a solid alibi. Um, uh, the idea is to push him off a train and make it look like he's broken his neck, and that's because if you die by accident. On a train, that triggers this double indemnity clause, so they get a hundred grand instead of fifty grand for this life insurance policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's it's kind of on the face of it watertight and, and perfect. Um, though I have to say, so, the, so, so is, uh, yeah, in, in technical detail, though he he's actually gets his neck broken in the in the car on the way to the station, yes. and then Neff travels on the train, uh, disguised as him leaves the train because American train, you couldn't do this in any other country. Uh, yeah, the train is going slowly. He can just leap off and vanish. And that, then, yes. um, then, uh, so this turns the up the with train. the body and then, and then they place it. So, so, you know, the following train will smash it up a bit and then, yeah. Well, that's what I, I assumed because I, I, I assumed that's what happened that the other train smashes it to bits, which is probably why, because to be honest, forensically, there's quite a difference between your neck snapping, falling off a train, and being strangled to death. And mm. does he break his neck at the time? Or that—that that was a little confusing to me. And we don't see again, probably because of the Hayes Code, which I think this is what I like about the, the Motion Picture Code in a way. Is when, and particularly someone like Billy Wilder, who's a master of dancing around this stuff, it does create this great art for me, where they're they're having to dance around the code. So instead of the murder, we see Neff sort of looming up in the background then we focus on Barbara Stanwyck on Phyllis's character and just her expression she's a phenomenal actress um, Mm. uh, because her expression then you just see like her husband is getting strangled to death beside her and she's planned it but her face is um, this this is the actual reality of it yes yeah um, but aside from like horror and fear there's also a kind of an excitement I just just think it's perfect bit of bit of acting and then there's a great um there's a great bit of ad-libbing, which is, or not quite ad-libbing, but Billy Wilder was about to drive away from the scene and his car wouldn't start. And he suddenly thought, let's do that to these guys. They're absolutely shafted if the car doesn't start. Mm. So we have this great scene of where they've done it, they've put the body, everything's gone smoothly and the car doesn't start. And just, it's just a great bit of, oh, great bit of drama because you do, you kind of care about, I, I can't quite explain what the difference is between this and Uncut Gems. It's partly because they, the actors have great screen charisma, I mm. think. Um, they are a good looking pair, both of them. Um, but more than that, they're just snappy. And also, the plan is so audacious and so perfectly done. You kind of want them to get away with it a bit, even though they're awful people. <laughs> um, if you didn't care yeah, that, about them, that, just this is a great the thing. They, they manage to be a little bit sympathetic, even as they're mm. being thoroughly self-interested. Yes, I, 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 it does it in a, in a very good way. I think because maybe that I don't know quite what it is because what they're going for is very human and not noble. Um, it's just lust and greed, and, and it comes a point where you're not really sure quite why they're doing it certainly pretty soon afterwards Walter Neff kind of has very little interest in her and, and kind of given up well, on the money 
Yeah, that that's tricky stuff because uh, as as far as the public is concerned, he he sold the policy to her husband. I mean, it, 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 it's deceptive, but he it, it's got to be his signature on it because yes. that, that's the point of contact. He he's already been there about the about the car insurance and the rest of it, and so they need to be separate until it's all gone through. The payout has happened, then they can run yes. off to somewhere together. Yes, and she is. Yeah, she 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 wants to jump jump on her new lover. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, and he's got two things because on the one hand, here is the sensible thing: we cannot be seen together. We're we're just meeting in the supermarket and having casual conversations. Yes. On the other hand, I think for him, maybe that's well okay. That that's fine. Maybe I don't want to. Yeah, there's a there's a well played bit of kind of. Uh, I, I've, I've done you, the thing. I've I've achieved the yeah, my my yeah fifteen years of uh, being an honest man goal. Yes, and and I've and I've I've worked the trick, and that was the fun bit, maybe. But now there's kind of I wouldn't quite say murderous. Well, it is murderous remorse, really. It's, it's kind of it's not so much what he's done. You know, he never really expresses much remorse for the man mm. who's killed, but he knows that the guilt of what he's done and the fear of being caught is going to haunt him for the rest of his life uh and that is when it comes home to him that this wasn't just oh you get the money you get the girl great it it starts to dawn on him where well, he puts it in a great way that um i couldn't hear my footsteps i felt like i was a dead man walking i just it's it's, it's very efficient chandler kind of dialogue um but it just it, it gets it great that wilder I don't know if this is true in the story, in the, the short story slash novel, but in the book, Wilder is more interested, sorry, in the film, Wilder is more interested, much like the Coens are in a way, um, of the consequences of the actions and the actual action itself and mm. how it all unravels. Yeah, and and then... So, yeah, the... the we, we have a, a stepdaughter, I guess, Um Yes. Uh, Lula, is it? Uh, Lola. Lola. Yeah. She, she feels quite strongly, uh, that Phyllis killed her actual mother. Uh, Phyllis having been, um, her mother's nurse when her mother was ill and, you know, not maybe in great shape, but not expected to die immediately. And, and then all I, of a I sudden think... there was, the, there was this situation which she was the only witness to. And, yes, and Phyllis has just right. brazened it out and said, "Well, you know, you're wrong." <laughs> so, but I think at this point we are we're pretty sure that she she has done this before, and whether this is the uh, the only killing she's had to get where she wants to, but uh, it's certainly implied. I, I think we're supposed to think that yes, she did do the murder, and that's another thing that I think then Walter starts to realise he's been played a bit. Yeah, and. He, he goes out, um, seeing Lola to, um, basically try, try to get her to shut up about the previous thing. And I, I can't help feeling there might be a bit of jealousy from Phyllis there as well. Yes. Yeah. It's a funny, it's not kind of a, it's not quite a love relationship that develops between Walter and Lola. Uh, as you say, it starts out as a, okay, I've got to, I've got to shut this guy. But he starts to realize, I suppose what a nor- more normal relationship might look like with another normal human, even if 
I, I don't know whether he starts to feel sweet on Lola. I think it's kind of implied that he does, but Phyllis certainly or, gets Or at least it. In his, well, his clinkered salesman soul, what, what he can do as an approximation of that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, I mean, he's uh, but, already sold his soul to the devil with his uh, with his job. But, but, um, but Lola has or had a boyfriend who, who's a hot-headed guy with an Italian name. And we all know what that means, don't we? Uh, <laughs> uh, whom Phyllis starts seeing. Nino. And then Walter discovers that. Um, and I don't, I don't think she ever really explains what, what... I don't think she ever has an excuse for him about that. Not Apart really. Just, just sort of generally you know, making things look plausible or whatever. Um, By the time it comes out, really, they're starting to get a bit past excuses and they both realise it's just not going to happen the way they planned it out. And so at, at their final scene... Um, He's visited her and he, he has worked out that she is planning for Zacchetti to kill him. Yes. And then. Which he doesn't deny, I don't think. Yeah. And, and then presumably he, he gets arrested for it and she goes off free. Yes. Um, but instead he's going to kill her and frame Zacchetti for it. Yes. Well, uh, so he does the first part of the plan. Well, no, no. Oh, she, she shoots him in the shoulder, but then realises, and this is a thing that I think there's a room for a lot of argument about, that the strong suggestion is that she doesn't finish him off because she has had an actual genuine my God, what is this feeling? It's actual affection for another human being. I've never (laughs) met it before. Actual emotion, yes, other than greed. Yes, certainly that's what she says. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It's what she says, and she's she's at least been a plausible liar before. I mean, up near the beginning, she's, she's claiming that her husband is, is uh, a drunken and violent, and we never see that from anybody except her. Yeah, yeah there's, there's, there's nothing to support that truth, and it, and it obviously plays into the narrative that she wants. But, um, okay, we, we've got the eye highlights, the, the OB spots, in, in, that, yes. in that last close-up of her. And... I think that is intended to imply that, yeah, this might actually be a genuine change of heart. It's a, that whole scene's interesting. It's the same scene, it's the same uh, lounge area where they first meet, and in that first one it's flooded with light and everyone's well lit up. Hmm. This last scene is shrouded in dark. When he sees her, she's basically uh, in shadow completely, and it, hmm. it, I... I I think that, you know, this is a noir film and I think the lighting is important. Absolutely. Whether she's, um, whether there, you know, she's implied to be a creature of darkness. Certainly that's what Walter is thinking at that time. He's lost any feeling of empathy for her. But yes, right at the end, as you say, we have this, um, the lighting again, which shows maybe she's had a change of heart. The, The feeling I got was that probably it actually is a genuine change of heart, but that really wouldn't be enough for them actually to build a future together. <laughs> no. Even if he hadn't already planned to murder her, which he then does. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's the that's the one that's hard to... It's not the only one. I was about to say the cold-blooded murder, except he's already done a cold-blooded murder before, <laughs> but it's pretty uh, grim of him to... Oh, it's just a horrible ending for them. It, it does... It reminds me a bit of uh, the, the Coen brothers a bit. It hasn't... It hasn't quite got the, well, it has got cynical humour. It hasn't quite got the, this is more kind of world weary. Um, mm. but 
they're really nasty pieces of work with both these characters. But, but then he has one final moment of redemption. He do, he does get the um, save the cat moment. Yeah, because he runs in, runs into Zacchetti outside, having he was turning up on, on schedule, and basically w- without telling him, tells him go away, don't be found here. Go yeah. go and call your ex girlfriend; she wants to talk to you again. Now, whether his story that Zucchetti actually killed her would have stood up to scrutiny, I think is doubtful. Um, but still, it, in theory at least, he's got a way out of saving and and get, going off, not with the money anymore, but at least getting off scot-free. And he, he doesn't. He stops Zucchetti from being framed hmm. and uh, sacrifices himself for that goal. Well, it's not intentional. I mean, as, as we see uh, in in the final scenes, when when we get back to where the flashback started, he is still intending to ha- having got to his office and taped his convention his confession for his buddy. Um, he is planning to to flee to Mexico. So he says. I mean, I'm. He spends good few hours reading. I mean, while he's bleeding. I mean, I don't know what kind of shoulder injury causes that. It must have caused a pneumothorax at the same time, but it was. It looked a bit high for me. Um, but he's um, not wheezing much. No, exactly. So I don't know quite. Well, maybe it got um got a brachial artery. But um, uh, anyway, but, but th- let's this, not worry is, this is the thing that he has to do in any case. The the, the recording the confession. He did, I mean, there wouldn't be much of a film without it. But I, I do wonder if he's, having already given it up for Zucchetti, kind of realises he's never going to make it. And I, I think this comes to the other, you know, the one genuine friendship slash love relationship in the film, which mm. is between him and Edward G. Robinson's character, um, uh, Keys. Keys, yeah. Um, yeah, he's, because, he's very homosocial in that regard. I mean, no, nobody has a relationship with a woman without sex coming into it, except other women. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. The, and, uh, well, yeah, Keyes uh, is definitely his friend, his one friend that we actually meet. And also, I mean, more, you know, there's a moment when he says, uh, and I was close, you couldn't see because I was uh, as close as, I was too close, I was uh, just one desk away, um, and uh, Keyes says, closer than that, Walter. It's, you know, it's a, it becomes a sort of father-son relationship, mm. really, more than, but it's, um, so I, to me, I suppose I read that as he just, he was dying and he kind of knew it, and he wanted to see the one person who actually he cared about in the world, or at least talk to him, even if he couldn't quite actually yeah. talk to him. That's the way I read it. But I agree. Um, on face value, he looks like he's still going to get away. But um, but he doesn't. He's bled uh, very discreetly um, because this is a <laughs> 1944 film um, under the motion picture code. But um, he uh, he has slowly lost so much blood that he's never going to get out of there. And it is strongly implied that he dies at the end. It's a nice touch that um, the whole film, he's been lighting Key's cigarettes um or cigars, uh, and right at the end, Keyes lights his cigar, which I think is sort of a... It's, that's what I love about these films that have to dance around the motion, but they're full of these clues and things. That uh, and you, what, and you're, what you're suggesting stuff and you're implying stuff, and th- there's room for argument, you know, over 50 years later, because yeah. it's not laid out explicitly the way the audiences normally like it. Exactly, yeah. I um, And I, I do think through the adversity of the Emotion Picture Co., it really does help to create these... Oh, spoiler masterpieces. <laughs> I, 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 I love, um, and we haven't talked much about Keyes' character. You know, I mentioned his um, statistic. He's 
He's a very charismatic actor as well. I mean, I've seen mm. he Edward G. Robertson was mainly playing villains. I suppose to me, being a nerd, I knew him mainly from um, Soylent Green, <laughs> which I think was his last performance. Um, I think he's in Planet of the Apes as well. I might be wrong about that. I think he's one of the orangutans. I'm pretty sure he is, but unrecognisable um, <laughs> under all that makeup. But he he was mainly kind of villains, like in um, I think it's Little Caesar was his mm-hmm. breakout role. Uh, but uh, he's, Largo. He's, Key Largo, yes, um, crime dramas basically, the, the kind of 30s crime dramas that folded into film noir, mm. um, of which this, uh, I don't know if it was the first film noir, but it was one of the first. Uh, we've had a whole episode about film Yeah, we've had stuff that was earlier, but I, and this is certainly regarded as one of the foundational ones, and mm. it, it was certainly widely copied. Uh, we, we've talked before about, um, you know, something like Casablanca that wasn't particularly well regarded when it came out. Uh, yes. th- this was the critic, the critics loved it. It made decent money. Yes. Um, it was, a, it was nominated for seven Academy Awards. Didn't win any. Yeah. I, I think, um, it, it may, did Billy, um, Billy Wilder might have never won any. He must've won one for the apartment maybe, but there's things looking, like, yeah, looking, looking at the list of, of things that it lost to the only one I have seen is Gaslight. And that was Ingrid Bergman for best actress. So. Oh, I like that. It's not as good as this. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I really like um, Edward G. Robertson's. Uh, he brings a lot of humanity and warmth, and, mm. and really, you should be rooting for him to find them out. But we're so kind of stuck in on Neff, um, and I like the relief where it seems like um, uh, Keys is is kind of. Batting even says, like, you know, it seemed even Keyes was batting for us or something along those lines. Um, yeah, well, one of the things he does is make the case to their mutual boss that, no, no, this clearly is just an accident because it doesn't work as a suicide as he thinks it is. Exactly, but then it occurs to him, hang on, it does work as a murder. Um, uh, and then the rest of the film, as you say, is, um, uh, is yeah. more just body disposal corner. Yeah. Yeah, you, they have pig farms in California. Uh, but, but then, then okay, then, well, then you wouldn't have had the double payout. Well, that's the difficulty, really. They need the body to be found and to make it look like an accident. Um, yeah, uh, I think this was one of the first films that did the whole Venetian blind lighting thing. So, yeah. So if, it, if you're looking for specific trope. elements that got widely copied, there's definitely that. And, and, and of course, the, the German expressionist, we will not just overlight everything, we will use the um, light and shadows to, to provide and mood. And not just mood, you know, in, in a lot of these films, and I think certainly here it provides a sort of kind of morality too. Mm. Um, so as I say, in the final scene where everything's dark, these characters kind of revealed their blackest hearts and they're just <laughs> terrible people. Um, oh, it, it's well lit. Um and, I, I think well. it's worth considering the, the, the three different endings, because in, in the story, uh, it's a double suicide. The, the company keeping Phyllis and Walter under surveillance so that they can't yes. meet. Um, Walter decides to keep her quiet by murdering her as well, but she shoots him in the chest first. He confesses, oh, the, wow. he confesses the plot in hospital to Keyes. Keyes arranges for him to escape by taking a steamship for Mexico. Um, he meets Phyllis again on the ship, uh, and then they decide to end it all by jumping off. Oh, it's Phyllis. Okay, okay. Well, that's a bit more convoluted, and yeah, I mean, maybe it works in the story. It feels I, I, unnecessary. I'm not sure Lola's in it at all. Um, okay. 
yeah, I mean, for, in in the in the novel, um, the the I don't think the whole thing about uh, Phyllis's previous murder is there. But anyway, uh, that's a nice uh, alleged so, murder. So in any case, that that was the, that was the, what they started with, and it was clear they couldn't film that because the production code would never allow a suicide. No. Um, even from black-hearted criminals such as these. So the version that uh, was filmed, uh, though it, it's been lost, there are production stills remaining, um, was Neff goes to the gas chamber, having having shot Phyllis as as in the final version, and and Keys is watching. Okay, and so, I think so. They that's decided... explicitly, you know, yes, he, he the criminal is getting the consequences of his crime, but yes. It was quite a gruesome scene, though. So I think that mm. they weren't that the MPAA weren't. Um, yeah, in, in fact, it, it was the shift from that to the final scene that we actually get that got them to remove their last objection to the screenplay as shot. But, uh, but again, yeah, it worked, as you say, because it, it was worked, gruesome. Uh, it works better here, though. I mean, we don't need to see that, and, and it's kind of, in a way, it's kind of on Walter who almost gets a redemption. Um, Phyllis. Uh, dies alone, murdered. Uh, well, not alone, <laughs> but she is killed. Um, whereas Walter kind of dies with his mentor with him. He has someone to hold his hand, at least metaphorically speaking. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and light his cigarette um, to light his way. Um, I, I do believe um, I, this is very, very loosely based on uh, an actual murder, but um, I, I don't think it has many. Um, yeah, but it, in, in that case, uh, it, it, I think it was the the wife's lover um, who was involved to start with. Uh, let's see. Yes, the... I mean, there have been a number of murders based on insurance <laughs> claims, um, as we find out in the film as well. Um, it's, I mean, for me, I, I suggested this one because I, it, it's one that I kind of, uh, came across in my frequent watching old black and white films. Mm. I was just blown away by this one. It, it's one of the snappiest scripts and the most gripping plots that I had seen up until that point. And it, I mm. think it stands up today. I, I had, um, I had already liked Billy Wilder because I like some like it hot. Um, and on the strength of this, I watched a, a lot of his other oeuvre, which is, is very good. I still think this is his um, uh, apotheosis. It's just great. Um, so for me, uh, no question, this is a masterpiece. In fact, to me, and, this is... Uh, only his fourth film as, as director. Only his fourth film. I'd say it's masterfully done. And it, it comes out of a bit of adversity, you know, the spikiness between Raymond Chandler and Billy Wilder, hmm. the uh, the motion picture code... Um, but there must have been something. I, it's an interesting one. As you say, Casablanca was almost an accidental classic. They were, weren't really expecting it to be that special, at least when they cobbled it together. I think as they were filming it, they started to realise it. But he, uh, he was kind of aware that the talent that was going into it um, and the actors, otherwise you wouldn't have got someone like Freddie McMurray to, to break bad, if you like, or Barbara, um, uh, Barbara Stanwyck to, yeah, to play the villainess, the femme fatale, um, or Edward G. Robinson to accept third billing or whatever, but it, it yeah, just... well, I, I think both uh, McMurray and Stanwyck were, were basically challenged, you know, you, you're doing this thing, but can you really act? Yeah. Um, and it turns out, yes, they can. <laughs> they, they're both, I mean, to me, they're uh, both. McMurray M- 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 reckoned, it. uh, he could get away with it because his contract was with Paramount and they, they wanted him to be the good guy. 
Uh, so, so, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll agree to this, but, but they'll, they'll say no. Um, but he, but he was uh, up for contract renewal and, and Paramount decided to teach him a lesson by giving him an unsavory <laughs> role. Uh, so, okay, so he accepted it, assuming he'd never have to do it in a million years. It turns out he did have to do it, but it worked out all right anyway, because it, um, it, it turned out to be a great career. But, but um, this is also one him. of George Raft's um, famous turndowns of, of roles <laughs> in great films. George Raft, didn't he turn, he turned down um, uh, the Maltese Falcon as well. And um, uh, for, for, the, for this one, uh, he, he, um, he had Wilder telling of the plot because he didn't read so good. No, uh, fair enough. Um, a lot of people didn't um, back then. And and he interrupts it. Well, what about the lapel bit? You know, where he, he flashes his lapel. You see his badge. You know, he's a detective. That, that's what this story's about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's probably poor George Raft. History's um, uh, worst chooser of roles ever. Um, but it's worked out all right for us. It gave us the Maltese Falcon. It gave us a. What did you think of it, uh, Roger? You hadn't seen this before, I believe. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we, I, I, we, we can't generate controversy over this one. Um, it's a good one. It's a right in our wheel. I thought it was yeah. in your wheelhouse. We both like noir. We like, um, uh, we like 40 snappy dialogue and, um, uh, suggestible stuff when they're avoiding the motion picture codes. It's yeah. Really and, it, and it's unpleasant, but unpleasant, but still sympathetic characters. I think maybe the key for me. Yeah, and that's where this works for us, whereas Uncut Gems um, and um, uh, Raging Bull didn't work. Mm. I mean, this is a uh, this is a tragedy, and, but it's an interesting one. You know, we said before, the tragedy, you're really rooting for the character to get out of the way. The train's going to hit them. You're desperate for them. Here, you're not quite. I mean, you well, know. Well, in order for them to get out of it, they would essentially have to become different people. Yes, exactly. Um, but it, it's just fascinating to watch it unravel. I don't think it would work as well without the Edward G. Robinson's character, because um, uh, he offers a level of humanity, and he's really mm. the redemption of Neff, and g- gives you the level of sympathy, which is why you kind of, even though he's the one that done all the cold-blooded murders, actually, except the one that we off-screen that's presumably the mum, he, he's somehow more sympathetic than um, Phyllis, uh, mm. and, and it's masterfully done on her part in that she, as you say, I think it's just, it's, it's an interesting performance by, um, Fred McMurray because he is weak, but he doesn't come across that way. It's only he, the fact that everything he does. He can project yeah. the image. Yeah. If he couldn't do that, is. he wouldn't be a good salesman and, and he clearly so, is a good salesman. So it wouldn't be interesting. Maybe this is the difference with Uncut Gems in that he clearly, you know, um, Adam Sandler's character, just is weak and flawed and doesn't have any charm or redeeming features <laughs> particularly. Whereas at least um, Fred McMurray, he's only weak in retrospect when you see what he did um, and how he behaved um, and how he fell for this femme fatale. Well, there, there's I, I, a, a principle used in analysing aviation accidents, which is generally known as the, the Swiss cheese model, which is basically... Yes. Uh, you, you don't have just one thing going wrong. Uh, you, you design the system so that there are redundancies and so on. So what, what you have to have is it effectively your slices of Emmental all lining up so, so that so there is the a hole that goes all... all the way through. And yes. yet, if, if he had not met the available woman who, who hinted strongly that if her husband were dead, she would be even more available, maybe he would <laughs> yeah. never have done his perfect crime. Yes. Uh, if, if she had not met the, um, Guy who was prepared to do all the hard work for her, maybe, um, maybe she would not have arranged it herself. 
But yeah, uh, because they are, because they do, because of who they are. And I, I felt he was really talking himself into it at one point. Yeah, so, yeah, he does. Like uh, he says, "Oh, I try to avoid it, Keys," but he, he doesn't really. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree. It's only after he's done it that the, the vapidness of it. Anyway, uh, it does slightly it. remind me of Bonnie and Clyde in terms of the you know the, the combination of these people who aren't particularly sympathetic, well, aren't particularly nice at least. The in- inevitable yes. tra- tragic ending, but mm. for there, there, I, f- I felt they they were on the rail tracks from the start, really was the yes. way it was portrayed, whereas here they could have done things differently. Yes. At least up yeah. to the point where the actual killing happens after that, you know, they don't really have much option in terms of what they do, other than they turn themselves know. in, which wouldn't be a great option because they would both be executed. Um, yeah, they, yeah. It, it's an effective I, tragedy because I care more about them. I, it's an interesting one for the, the, the motion picture thing as well, because... Uh, they are, they're criminals and they're awful and they, they are slightly glamorized, but they, but it works for the motion picture code. They, they are they definitely the beautiful people of this film, yeah. Yes, yeah. But their crime doesn't pay at all and they get what's coming to them. Hmm. Um, it's good. It's a good film. Yeah, well I mean, done. We're, we're <laughs> <laughs> there's not a lot to disagree on, I've got to say. Um, no. th- this is very much the sort of thing, sort of thing I love, the sort of, the reason I regard myself as a film fan rather than a guy who just watches films occasionally. Because there's yeah, stuff this, like this sometimes. This is the sort of, the, uh, gems like this, uh, one of the reasons that, again, I started watching films to see if I could uncover, oh, I'm creeping towards saying uncut gems again. <laughs> I <wonder what> <laughs> I wanted to, I thought if there's films like this that I didn't really know that much about, I want to see them. I have to say through the course of the podcast, haven't seen that many that I uh, unequivocally love like that. There have been some. I, I think maybe so there aren't that many, but there are some and they're not always the ones that everybody says that says are great. So yeah. Yes, exactly. As with them, um, uh, as with Casablanca, um, when they were making it. Though that was recognized pretty quickly after it came out. Anyway, there we are. Um, thank you, Billy Wilder. More, please. Oh, no, a bit late for that. <laughs> but, but there we are. Lovely stuff. You're not smarter, Walter. You're just a little taller. <laughs>